show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim, and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Larry. What are we serving today? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm drinking a very bee-friendly beverage today. Um, mm-hmm. It's a G&T, but it's bee-heavy in its uh, origins. So I've got Pollination Gin, mm-hmm. which is produced by the Dovey Distillery, which I think is in North Wales. But they collect their botanicals from... Um, It's like a big biosphere filled with lots of pollinators and lots of lovely botanicals. Uh, And also the tonic water is a local tonic water called Busby's Tonic Water. And they sweeten their tonic with honey um, that is produced by local bees. So a very bee-friendly G&T for what is our animal-themed podcast. Hey, uh, Elyri, what's what's a ghost's favourite insect? Oh, God. Um, oh, wait. Oh, wait, no. I was going to, for some reason, just go bees. <laughs> for this boo. Boobies. I don't know. <laughs> you just said it. Boobies. 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 No, I thought I was just I... being too silly. <laughs> no, it's it's exactly the same joke I made in the, well, almost exactly the same joke I made in our Halloween episode. On haunted pubs, and I said, "What's oh. a ghost's favorite body part?" And you got it straight away. Oh Jesus! <laughs> but you've clearly, a... for, you've clearly forgotten that victory from only about three weeks ago. Yeah, that's a small <laughs> window into my life, everyone. <laughs> that's, that's my brain. <laughs> See, I thought the joke was that you'd be like, "Oh, not that joke again," but no, no, uh, no, no. <sighs> <laughs> nope, absolutely not. Yeah, or we're maybe, doing it about... maybe I'm being on brand. I'm, I'm, I'm acting like a goldfish because oh. we're talking about animals. <laughs> I see, because <laughs> it's about. <laughs> on that note, I am drinking. Um, it's a pilsner, but it's by Mad Squirrel Brewery. Oh. Um, that have a very uh, funky-looking squirrel on a black and metallic blue can, which is very pleasing. But uh, they are they're a brewery from, um, sort of north west outside of london area st albans that kind of neighborhood um and they don't really have a good reason for being called mad squirrel i was like oh is there a sort of legendary story behind this but no there isn't they just liked it (laughs) why not but there you go it's animally um so we have i've told you like we've done some animal stuff in the past we did a whole episode on dogs when Mm -hmm. we did st bernard's barrels i've definitely told you about the story of the drunken moose uh, before in Sweden that they like to eat fermented apples that have uh, fallen and there's a really good and easily findable photo on the internet of one stuck up a tree which I look at every few weeks um, and <laughs> just on squirrels as well there was a really good drunken squirrel video from about two years ago that did the rounds on the internet which you can still find and I think they even showed it on spring watch um, and it was a squirrel eating an overly fermented pear and he just sort of stops and his head rolls back to the sky and he looks absolutely <laughs> wasted. It's pretty good. But I have found even more boozy animal stories 
uh, to tease us with. But um, do, you want, do you want to start off with what we should be drinking, if not these um, the ones we're drinking at the moment? What else could we be yes. having for animal theme? Yes. Um, I tend to, as a default, whenever we have a theme, go down the route of cocktails. Sure. <laughs> so uh, obviously going to talk about cocktails. Um, there's lots of cocktails that we probably can think of off the top of our heads that are named after animals. Some that I found that aren't so well known. But um, yeah, I'll just go through a few. Great. Um, start with the Greyhound, because that's quite well known. Mm-hmm. Um, the origins of the Greyhound cocktail. A um, bit vague. Uh, a, a, a little bit of kind of one, one debate versus another. Uh, the general consensus is that the first printed version of the Greyhound cocktail was in 1930. Uh, we've talked about it before. It's the legendary Savoy cocktail book. Mm. Um, so that's when it's first kind of in print. Um, now do do you know what a greyhound cocktail consists of? No, I don't. I don't no. know that I've ever had one. It is super simple. It is now again. Some people argue whether it's gin or vodka, but originally it was gin. Uh, but it is quite simply gin and grapefruit juice. That's it, and some ice. Oh right. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I probably have had that then. <laughs> I just didn't know it's a greyhound. Um, so yeah, I think if you were to order one now, it's more likely that you would have vodka and mm-hmm. grapefruit juice, but it was kind of more often associated with gin when it was, um, kind of conceived in the thirties. Cause obviously vodka wasn't really all that popular until after the world war two. So it was just by default, um, gin, uh, prior to that whiskey was king in the U S but gin was also a staple, but as time went on, vodka replaced them both and overtook uh, gin and whiskey sales. Mm-hmm. I digress. Uh, so yeah, as I said, some people argue whether that was actually the kind of first, the the birth of the Greyhound cocktail was 1930. Um, because there is a report from 1927 on agricultural chemistry by the chief of the Bureau of Chemistry and Soils, um, he had a section in his report on the composition and utilisation of the Florida grapefruit. Mm. Uh, and he went into all kinds of details of how people use it, how they enjoy it, how they cook with it, etc, etc. But then he came on to drinking it and he writes in his report in 1927 about a very satisfactory carbonated grapefruit beverage that can be um, produced. It's got the characteristic bitter grapefruit taste um, it can be quite sweet, so it can be used by itself, or he suggests mixing it with alcoholic drinks. Um, so because the Greyhound is quite simple, it is just, you know, alcohol plus grapefruit juice. It, a lot of people argue that, you know, the Greyhound itself isn't all that, you know, <laughs> new an idea when somebody three years prior was already suggesting you do it in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the name the Greyhound was first kind of coined and published in the 30s in the Savoy cocktail book. Um, The name Greyhound, it hasn't really got all that exciting origin story. It was quite simply produced by um, a bartender in a chain of restaurants called the Post House restaurant chain. And those Post House House restaurants were very popular in Greyhound bus terminals in the US. Um, to me, I think that takes the magic off it, really. It's like a chain yeah. of restaurants in bus terminals. It's essentially like 
I don't know, if Little Chef created a cocktail. <laughs> yeah, and it's also given me drink of, drinking cans of G&T on the bus vibes. Oh, who, do, who does Who would that? do that? Who would do that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there are lots of... Uh, I, I tried to look into the background because there are lots of variations on a greyhound that have a similar name. So the Salty Dog is essentially a greyhound, but it's got a salted rim. Uh, and also there's a Dalmatian, which is a similar variation where people add sometimes like pepper or other things to it. They all have like kind of canine names, but I think mm-hmm. it's purely just a, a kind of riff on the fact that it's named after a dog, even though... It's not. It's named after a bus terminal. <laughs> mm. um, so, yeah, that's the Greyhound. Some others that I looked into. Um, let's go with the more kind of like well-known ones. Grasshopper. If you heard of a grasshopper cocktail. Mm. Mm-hmm. I've never had a grasshopper cocktail myself. Um, purely because they sound like diabetes in a glass. <laughs> it's uh, creme de menthe, creme de cacao and cream. It's mm, a lot. Um, obviously the creme de menthe makes it bright green, which is where it gets the name Grasshopper. Um, it's over a hundred years old, uh, the Grasshopper cocktail. Mm. Uh, it was created in a, in a bar in New Orleans in the French Quarter. Uh, so the bar opened in 1856, but it's said that the family that bought the bar from the founders created the cocktail. So Philibert Guichet, his family bought the bar in the 1910s and they invented the cocktail. Uh, apparently they were in New York for a comp- cocktail competition and they created that cocktail um, it took second prize in the competition, and I tried for the life of me to find out what beat it, but I couldn't mm. find out. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's quite a simple origin story for the grasshopper. A panicked cocktail competition. <laughs> um, so some others less well known. Um, this one rolls off the tongue. Embassy of the Dolphins. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> never um, yeah, never heard of it. It's not all that popular. I just liked it when I found it. Um, it's served in Alcove restaurant in Boston. Uh, it just sounds very, very uh, interesting. It comprises of vodka, Benedictine, butterfly tea infused curacao, lemon, and bitters. Um, so, yeah, there's not all that much history to it. It's not very well known, but it just sounds really fun because obviously one, um, butterfly tea, I only kind of got into that recently when I went to Thailand and started having like butterfly um, butterfly tea um, desserts and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's got like a really bright blue, purple colour to it. Um, but apparently when they make this cocktail, the it kind of changes colour as you make it. It's like really bright blue and then it goes more of a lilac colour, which is why I guess they call it the Embassy of the Dolphins because it's those yeah. kind of colours. So yeah. it sounds it, very It fun. reacts to... I, I have some... It reacts to acidity. That's what makes it change colour. So I think it must be when they pour the lemon in, it yeah. changes into that lilac colour. Um, next, another one for the Savoy cocktail book, the Rattlesnake. Um... I picked this one more for the description. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's blended whiskey with lemon juice, absinthe, powdered sugar and egg white. And they claim that a rattlesnake cocktail can either cure a rattlesnake bite or kill a rattlesnake 
or make you see a rattlesnake. Wow. I mean, <laughs> those are a lot of options. You're really taking your chances, aren't you, with Kill or Cure there? Um, I just like that, you know, the, the whole it's the whole absinthe uh, hallucination stuff mm-hmm. that's just continuously coming back on this podcast. Absolute nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the Bee's Knees. This is a fat nice. one. So uh, this is a classic from the Prohibition era. Uh, so the phrase the Bee's Knees was very popular in the Roaring Twenties. Uh, obviously, Roaring Twenties, a decade of opulence, decadence, cocktails. Um, so the Bee's Knees consists of, again, quite simple, gin, honey syrup and lemon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the reason it was quite prolific back then was because usually in the 20s, um, ingredients like honey, citrus, other sweeteners or other fruits, they were used to like soften uh, the drink. But here with the bee's knees, the strong flavour of the lemon and the sweetness of the honey turned the gin into a kind of really tasty, popular drink. It was it was the first time they'd all been used in unison, per se. Oh. Um, next up, and I think this is the last one on my list. No, actually, I've got a really nice one to finish with. This one, uh, the Falcon. So the Falcon Ooh. cocktail was created um, for the Super Bowl, or Superb Owl, since this is the animal podcast. Yes. Uh, created for the Superb Owl um, by a guy called Johnny Sweat. Really nice <laughs> name. <laughs> Uh, so Johnny Sweat was the cocktail director in a bar in New York, and he wanted to create a cocktail for people to enjoy during the superb owl. Um, it was the Atlanta Falcons, hence the name the Falcon. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were playing the Patriots, New England Patriots. Uh, and it sounds really good, actually. It's vodka, pomegranate liquor, agave syrup, fresh lime juice and ginger beer. Oh, Yes. Mm, very good. Uh, unfortunately, the Falcons lost, <laughs> um, but the cocktail is still very popular in said bar and in lots of home superb owl parties to this day, probably because it sounds quite easy to make and easy to drink. I would drink a Falcon. Not mm. a whole one. Last but not least, a really cute one. This one is called Float Like a Butterfly. Mm. Um, sounds very tasty as well chamomile infused gin is mixed with smoked honey syrup lemon and prosecco Um, but I like this one because it's been created by a cocktail tender in the Monarch Bar Uh, now the Monarch Bar supports the conservation efforts for an endangered butterfly called the Monarch Butterfly Mm -hmm. um, which is nice in itself but it's really nice actually The, the bar itself um, it sits on one of the most important migration paths for that butterfly. So they've obviously cashed in on that, but not yep. just cashing in, they're really <laughs> supporting the conservation efforts. Um, it turns out it's not just like a kind of local conservation project either. Apparently these butterflies are critical to the global pollination. So, um, yeah, float like a butterfly, drink like a fish. <laughs> Good life, Mate. <laughs> yep. Nice. Yes, that's me. Which one are you going to have? Oh, I think we can invent our own. I think there's got to be a gap in the animal markets for something. So if you were going to create one, if you were going to create one now, what what would you call it? What would it be? 
I, I'm too embarrassed to say <laughs> what came to my head. I want to know. Tell us instantly. I want to know. Uh, the stinky pussy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, does it have any particular ingredients? <laughs> um, it's going to have to have a, a stink to it. So I guess it's going to be tequila based because it's going to uh-huh. have to make people go, oh, when they smell it. Yeah. That's as far as I've got. <laughs> okay, great. Let's keep us updated. <laughs> uh, I'm going to, I think mine's going to be um, the opportunistic rat. And it's oh. going to be gin and bin juice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that could be the stinky pussy, to be fair. <laughs> no, hands off my opportunistic rat. Get your own stinky pussy. <laughs> I was going to say I have, but I definitely don't. (laughs) (laughs) I know, that bombshell. Um, Do you want to hear about some boozing animals? Yes, please. Okay, you've got to start with with monkeys, haven't you? Um, Mm -hmm. Everyone everyone loves a drunk monkey. So there's this 2006 study on rhesus macaques where they were given access to alcohol in a series of experiments. Um, They observed, and this will shock you, it was not unusual to see some of the monkeys stumble and fall, sway and vomit. Um, <laughs> in a few of our heavy drinkers, they would drink until they fell asleep. The macaques frequently drank until their blood reached the 0.08 level that would disqualify them from driving a car in most states. Um, I love that as a as like a level of drunkenness. Like it would be if they were sober, fine, go and drive that car. <laughs> but you're a drunk monkey, no, absolutely not. Um, and when the researchers, this is the golden golden nugget bit, when the researchers looked at patterns of drinking, uh, macaques that lived alone tended to drink the most. And in addition, they drank more at the end of the day, just like humans after a long day of work. Oh, yes. Oh. Drinking patterns are exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are... Um, monkeys in a zoo in Kazakhstan, central Kazakhstan, where um, it, it gets very cold there overnight. The temperatures dip to minus 40. And the zookeepers decided, how can we keep them warm? Let's give them some wine. Just like when we were really cold in Prague and we were drinking hot wine on every single street we walked <laughs> down. Um, this was their, this was their <laughs> remedy for them against cold and flu. Um, he said, uh, the, the zookeeper said, it's not a matter of getting them drunk, but just relaxing them. The red wine was diluted with hot water mixed with sugar and fruit. So it, it was exactly like a malt, malt wine. wine. <laughs> yeah. Hot wine experience. I mean, we know it works. That's, that's what we went to as well. Um, the Kazakhstan Zoo claimed that it was normal practice, but, uh, London Zoo said it was absolutely not. <laughs> it was absolutely Boring not Boring bastards. So uh, there you go. But I guess tell that to the freezing monkeys of Kazakhstan. <laughs> um, elephants, they do have a taste for alcohol. To be honest, I think every mammal at least has a taste for alcohol that, that I've seen. Um, they have been known to steal rice beer in India and cause quite a lot of havoc and damage. And it's quite dangerous if they find your beer. So do not give any beer to elephants. Um, there's there's local law in Africa that says elephants get intoxicated from the fermented fruit of the marula tree. 
but when scientists actually sat down to look at that, there are a few problems. First of all, elephants don't generally eat rotten fruit off the ground. They go for the fresh stuff right off the tree. Um, secondly, the fresh fruit doesn't spend enough time in the elephant to actually ferment and produce alcohol there. And thirdly, even if the elephant did eat the rotten fruit, they would have to eat 1,400 pieces of very fermented fruit to get drunk. So, I was going to say, it's, it's going to take a lot to get an elephant drunk. <laughs> well, well, we'll come back to that because um, th- the point is, no, they don't get drunk from just foraging. But yes, they do get drunk if you have if you leave access to beer that you've produced, for example. But um, the size of an animal doesn't tell you how easily they will get drunk or not. So just because the elephant's big actually doesn't mean it has a high alcohol tolerance. It actually doesn't compared to a lot of other animals. It's just that um, it's so not in terms of percentage, but it just means it needs access to a lot of beer to get it. For example. The world's highest tolerance uh, that we know of for alcohol seems to come from the pen-tailed tree shrew of Malaysia, which are pretty tiny. So the pen-tailed tree shrew, um, there are, um, so there are actually seven species of animals that include the tree shrew and the slow loris as well, that feed on fermented nectar from the flower buds of the Burton palm plants. Um, and so the tree shrew just drinks this all day, but it doesn't get drunk at all. And this was uh, conducted in a 2008 study by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is frequently acronymed as PENAS. <laughs> P-N-A-S. It's everywhere. Yeah, it's like, well, how else are you going to pronounce that? Of course it's PENAS. So that's the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, they said they seem to have developed some type of mechanism to deal with that high level of alcohol and not get drunk. The amount of alcohol we're talking about is huge. It's several times the legal limit in most countries. Um, and the, in addition to that, these little tree shrews are a living model for extinct mammals. Um, so they are sort of close to the primates from which we have also descended um, and, and come down from. So the hypothesis is really that moderate to high alcohol intake it was present very early on in the evolution of all of these lineages of all the mammals, as I've said, particularly primates. Um, it's not exactly clear to what extent they benefit from ingesting the alcohol as such or how they mitigate the risk of that continuous um, high blood alcohol concentration. They just know it's there and that they deal with it. But yeah, very interesting that they're kind of they're quite close to our ancient relatives and they were already consuming um, alcohol at that point. So even before humans existed, we were drinking alcohol. <laughs> Fruit bats. Uh, There was a 2010 study where scientists fed wild-caught fruit bats sugar, water, laced with alcohol, and then they sent them through a maze. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. They love a maze, don't they? They love... Scientists love a maze, especially if the animal's drunk. But can you imagine that happening to you? Just getting whisked off the streets one day, (laughs) drunk, and then thrown into a maze. I mean, (laughs) that's not the nicest time, is it? But they found that the fruit bats that they dosed with alcohol had no more trouble navigating than the bats did who were given the sugar and water alone. 
So they think that um, being able to tolerate alcohol lets the bats have access to um, fruit, their, their main food source, for a longer period than only when it's um, just ripe. So basically, if animals are more likely to live kind of mostly off fruit, they've probably got this higher tolerance for alcohol so they can consume it for longer. Hmm. From fruit bats to fruit flies. Um, oh, after... Bloody to fruit fly. Well, let's see if this gives you any uh, any empathy for them. So after being deprived of sex, male fruit flies uh, may turn to alcohol to fulfill their physiological demand for a reward. That's according to um, a study that was published in Science. So they found that male fruit flies that had mated repeatedly for several days showed no preference for alcohol-spiked food. But on the other hand, spurned males who were denied access to females strongly preferred food mixed with 15% alcohol. So the researchers thought that the alcohol is satisfying the fly's desire for physical reward. So their biology says you need to be rewarded one way or another. You get sex or you get alcohol. (laughs) It does beg the question, why? (laughs) Why do we need to know that? Why do we? Why do we need to know that? Why do we need to know that fruit flies would get pissed if they hadn't had sex for a while? Well, I think it's really interesting (laughs) to see where kind of all all the different things that drive animals across the whole animal kingdom and how it relates to humans as well, how we understand that behaviour based on things like genetics and hormones and you know, all those kind of other things. Yeah, and it helps explain things like addictions as well. There's all sorts of, kind of applications it can potentially have to understand how the the brain's desire to be rewarded for something works. I just, I don't know. <laughs> imagine, if, imagine if we never felt the need to be rewarded. Like we, we never needed that dopamine hit. What would we actually mm. do with our lives instead of constantly chasing some sort of feeling of satisfaction? That's an idea for uh, for the it's fly. It's getting very deep. Well, you know, <laughs> but I'm pitching my idea for the sequel for the fly now. <laughs> you are. You brought this up. <laughs> don't I, I don't, just, ever, don't ever suggest that science like, is useless. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, imagine that's your job and you're at dinner parties. So what do you do? Well, I just research fruit flies and how they like drinking when they're horny. That'd be great. We. <laughs> I would have so many questions, and I think you would as well. <laughs> but I think mine would be, why? <laughs> and all the scientists in the room would mock you for such a stupid question. <laughs> you know, you never ask why research, because it's there to be understood. <laughs> um, hamsters. So is incoming. <laughs> these are the ones that rival the tree shrews in terms of how much they can consume. So hamsters love booze so much that they prefer to drink 15% ethanol instead of water. I can uh, relate. No, you can. <laughs> <laughs> and they can tolerate relative quantities that would kill a human. You can still relate. Yeah. Um, it's equivalent to a standard person drinking 21 bottles of wine every day. Whoa. Okay. Cannot that's, relate. That's their preference. Um, Would so, rather. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, likely explanation is that it's all about uh, the calories, hoarding the, the calories that are in alcohol, which is pretty similar to um, fat. 
Um, chubby hamsters love um, mm. to pile it on so they can survive the colder winters. They do hibernate. Um, and also they've got this hoarder lifestyle anyway, hamsters, hence the massive cheeks. Um, so it may be that as they collect food, it begins to ferment um, as well. Also in their, in their underground larders where they store everything ready for hibernation. So because they're such hoarders, um, it probably makes sense that they learn to tolerate more fermented foods um, over the years. But it, it's gone from a tolerance to an absolute preference now. Uh, lads, 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 the hamsters are. <laughs> um, this was uh, demonstrated in a, a paper in 2015. And to, uh, to assess how drunk the hamsters were getting, they used what's called the wobbling scale. It's very scientific. Mm-hmm. Um, so they look at the hamster's increasingly wobbly nature to ascertain their drunkenness until the uh, the little guys fall on their sides and they're unable to get up again. <laughs> oh. um, so it's down, obviously, you know, it's, it's not a matter of size. It's their highly efficient livers. The livers filter out alcohol and reduce the amount that winds up circulating in the blood. Um, and they, they proved that by demonstrating that when ethanol was injected directly into their bloodstream, therefore bypassing the liver, that did lead to them getting extra wobbly. So that's how they discovered that it's uh, just sort of an extra special liver function. Mm, who'd have thought injecting it directly would have had a bit of an impact? <laughs> <laughs> well, it just improves that the alcohol's being filtered out as opposed to they don't react to it, you know? Mm. It's not mm. a nerve thing, it's a liver thing. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's drunken animals. I, I didn't encounter many birds, uh, mostly mammals on my journey. Um, yeah. I find a passing reference that parrots prefer to get high when they were testing different forms of drugs. They said, oh yeah, parrots regularly raid opium farms because they love to get <laughs> high. So there you go. Ma- mammals like to drink, birds like to get high. That was okay. no pun intended there. <laughs> Um, I found some great stories of some very, very drunk animals. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think my favourite one was um, a story about a family of bears. Um, <laughs> when I read it, it literally reads like the script of like if Tim Burton got his hands on Goldilocks and the Three Bears. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's, it's epic. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2012, a family of bears managed to break into a holiday cabin in Norway. Um, they'd smashed the window and they'd got in. Thankfully, the owner wasn't there. He was out. Um, but they just went for it. <laughs> there were 100 cans of beer in the house. It was well stocked. And they got through every single can. Um, so a family of bears had <laughs> drunk 100 cans of lager Um They'd just bitten into the cans and drunk them. I don't know if you've ever done it. I've done it once um, at university um, with some American students who were on an exchange where they do this thing in America where they like pierce the can with like a key. Yeah. You drink it from that. I did that once and it is just like the whole drink just rushes into your mouth. It's horrendous. So, um, I can understand why they got even more drunk than normal because <laughs> they were essentially chinning cans of lager. Um, but they also ate all the food. And I really liked the new story I found um, specified that some of that food included chocolate, honey and jam. 
all of the bear favourites. Uh, and then once they'd drunk 100 cans of lager and eaten all of the food, they completely smashed the place up. Um, like all the furniture, all the white goods, all the bed, everything. They absolutely trashed the place. Um, the bears were still around the outside of the cabin when the owner returned. Um, he didn't obviously <laughs> try and step in. He just waited until they left. Uh, and then, yeah, popped in to just find the scene of absolute carnage that the bears had left. Yeah, um, I, can, I can see an adult Disney version of that being produced. Yeah. Or at least, or at least Panto. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've also got a drunken monkey story. Well, I say drunk, uh, gorilla. Um, a gorilla got very, very, very drunk and very nasty. Um, it was last February. A wildlife photographer was in Rwanda capturing some images of a group of gorillas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one gorilla in particular kept charging at him. Um, they had some kind of like experts with them because obviously this wildlife photographer wanted to spend a lot of time there, get as many pictures as he could and get to know the gorillas and understand them. So they had a lot of guys there who spend a lot of time in the mountains, know a lot about the gorillas. Um and he observed that he thought that this gorilla had mistaken the photographer for um, an, another male gorilla and he felt threatened by him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said they could tell that he was quite drunk as well, this gorilla. And they said it's not uncommon for them to get quite drunk on fermented bamboo stems that mm. they find in the mountains there. Um, but he said it was really problematic because this gorilla just was fixated on him getting very angry. And it's similar to what you said, like the drinking habits, essentially. He got really drunk and was trying to like be the alpha male and be like, Wait, mm-hmm. get off my bird. <laughs> so he wanted to fight the photographer for all the girls. Um, another great story. I found out about an annual... Um, let's call it a festival type thing. It's called Brew at the Zoo. So Riverbank Zoo in South Carolina has an annual event called Brew at the Zoo where they have lots of local brewers come down. So it's kind of like a pop-up festival. There's live music, there's bands, there's lots of microbreweries there selling their wares. Um, But one particularly brilliant sounding thing that they do there is they ask one of the animals to help them uh, make a limited edition beer for that year they'll they'll make a different beer every year (laughs) Uh, my favorite one was again a gorilla a 400 pound silverback gorilla in fact called patrick (laughs) Uh, and he helped them select the ingredients so i think they just let him peruse a bunch of different stuff that they'd brought into his enclosure and he picked his favorite ones which were uh, a caramel malt cherries a pilsner malt and some wheat uh, and they used that to create um, a beer that they called patrick's pick um, it was made in collaboration with a local brewery and patrick's pick then would go on to sell for the year and lots of the proceeds go back to the zoo and they do that every year they have an animal to come and help them pick the uh the ingredients for a beer every Aww, that's nice. super cute yes yeah. did have a look on the website it is happening in 2023 and it is on the spreadsheet <laughs> good you preempted that one nice <laughs> Um, I've got some pretty disgusting, uh, I've got a pretty disgusting section on 
booze made from animals. So I'm not going to go into a ton of detail because it's grim, but I feel like we should know this. So here we okay. go. Um, there is there is an informative website uh, called... <laughs> Do you know what? I'm not going to read it out because it's so grim. There's a website and um, it, it sells snake wine. So um, mm-hmm. it, Viet- Vietnam in particular seems to really enjoy this. Um, they put venomous cobra snakes and scorpions t- um, into rice wine from a special snake village in Vietnam. The the venom, it should be clear, uh, dissolves in the wine. Um, so the website does assure customers that the animals are no longer dangerous. I mean, they're not dangerous, they're dead. But the uh, venom is protein-based, and so it's um, made inactive because the ethanol denatures it. And they add herbs um, in to the wine with the creatures, and it's left to ferment for several months. Um, so it's um, very clearly a novelty gift, but they say it's not just a novelty gift. Um, it also has numerous health benefits, which include treating back pain, rheumatism, lumbago, and other health conditions. I mean, obviously, that's not true. Um, <laughs> just in case anyone was thinking, oh, Tim said it must be. No. Um, and obviously it's considered an aphrodisiac because it's cruel to animals and grace. Uh, there is, <laughs> there is also... Nothing's going to make me want to get frisky more than that snake wine. Mmm, exactly. <laughs> when when you go around for a nightcap and says, do you want me to get my snake out? It's not what anyone wants really, is it? It's not. <laughs> just brings out a fermented snake. It's not what nah, I was expecting. I'm, I'm just, I'm going to leave. <laughs> you, you put your snake back in there. Um, there's... Um, one that's made in Vietnam and China as well out of three lizards. Three lizard wine, it's called. Um, the instructions are simply drown three lizards, preferably geckos, in a vat of rice wine. As a little ginseng, leave to infuse. So there's a lot of that going on. Um, China also does, getting away from the, uh, the lizards, they also love um, baby mice wine. What is wrong with these people? Ugh. <sighs> Tell me about it. So um, they, you pop a couple of live baby mice into your wine and leave it to ferment and infuse. They prefer baby mice because they have no fur yet, so you don't get fur in your wine. You know. You know, it's like a really otherwise messed up it'd be version. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a really messed up version. Of like you know, when you were a kid and you used to get a bottle of cheap vodka and put lots of skittles in it. Yeah. It's like that, but with live animals. Someone, someone basically needs to introduce them to Skittles. <laughs> Skit, like, have, have you guys heard of Skittle vodka? Like, put that mice yeah. down. Put the mice yeah. down. Come yeah. here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, do you want to know what the Arctic version of this is? Of mm. putting something. Um, in fact, it's not. It's not even alcohol yet. In the if in it's the a Asian baby versions. seal, I'm out. I don't want it's to not, do you know what? It's not a baby seal. I don't think they've got bottles big enough. Um, although, this is quite big. No, it's some um, seagull wine. <laughs> so you, you put a dead seagull, uh, or, or parts of one, it says, if you haven't got a bottle big enough, into a bottle of water, and then you let it ferment in the sun. Jesus so it's not even like putting a lizard into alcohol where everything gets killed anyway. It's like, yeah, it's a dead bird in water, and then let's make booze out of it. This is how COVID starts. <laughs> um, you, you're probably familiar with uh, civet poo. 
civet poo coffee or um, yes. Luvac coffee. I've got Luvac coffee so, in the cupboard. Oh dear. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's that's made from beans, well, coffee cherries that have been eaten, digested, and pooped out by Indonesian civet cats. Mm-hmm. Um, often toted as the world's best. Producers of the coffee beans argue that um, the process improves the coffee because um, the civets choose to eat only certain cherries and in digestion the the chemical mechanisms mean that it um, it alters the composition of the coffee cherries. It's been called one of the most expensive coffees in the world with retail prices going from um, $100 per kilogram um, for the the farm the intensively farmed ones to $1,300 for the wild collected beans. Would you um, like some? I've got some. No, it's incredibly cruel. Um, yeah. and I would I would not. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's lot there's lots of harrowing documentaries you can watch either on BBC or, or YouTube about the farming of um, of the of the poor civets. It's yeah, it's it's not nice. Um so there's um, Mikula Brewery, which is based in Copenhagen, um, took that idea and they created Beer Geek Brunch Weasel, um, which adds, um, it's actually the Vietnamese equivalent of Luvac coffee, which they call Café Chong. Um, so they say that the, uh, the um, Indonesian ver- version often involves cruelty to animals, whereas the Vietnamese Café Chon doesn't so much. They say they source it responsibly, so you can drink it with a clear conscience. You can find out exactly what responsible farming of it is. I suspect it's kind of the equivalent of battery versus free range. Um, ch- you know, chickens mm. that would be more familiar with it. It's that kind of thing. Um, that aside, the ethics of it aside, I thought I'd do a bit of myth-busting on the other claims around it. So the Speciality Coffee Association of America, which is not um, the acronym PENIS, unfortunately, it's SCAR, um, states that there is a general consensus within the industry that it just tastes bad. Um, Coffee professionals compared the same beans with and without the Luvac process using coffee cupping evaluation and concluded it was apparent that Luvac coffee sold is sold for the story, not for superior quality. Using the SCAA cupping scale, the Luvac scored two points below the lowest of the three other three coffees. It would appear that the processing diminishes good acidity and flavour and adds smoothness to the body, which is what many people seem to note as a positive to the coffee. Also, I'd say I don't like it. It's gross. Yeah. Um, we, we had it... Um, it was in a... Um... Like in the room in the hotel, you know, like you get a tea and coffee station in your hotel room. They had like a pouch of this Lubeck coffee. And so I was like, I'll take that home. And it is yeah. disgusting. It's not nice. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I created that one study, but there's been a few studies, blind blind tastings. People generally say that it tastes too thin and the acidity has gone, which doesn't give it kind of that robustness. So um, officially, marketing bullshit. Um, yep. Here's another one which um, I'm sure isn't marketing bullshit. That's um, stag semen stout. (laughs) So, (laughs) the Green Man Pub in Wellington, New Zealand added what they called a protein-packed new brew to its lineup. Um, So, it features this unique product, 
from a Geraldine sire stag called Lagoon. And uh, they said they've taken care to preserve the stout's uniquely creamy qualities, including including using a hand pump rather than forced carbonation. They elaborated, saying there's only one way to serve semen stouts, and that's hand pulling it. Uh, Can I ask what you Googled to find that? (laughs) You absolutely (laughs) cannot. (laughs) Um, They've got got a delightful um, uh, logo, some delightful visual branding, though. So it says, stag semen stout, and then there's a picture of a stag, like a white stag, at the head and body, but then it sort of turns into a sperm at the tail. Like Aww. a like a mythical creature of, of yore. And um, the <laughs> tagline below it says, sweet and creamy with coffee and chocolate notes. <laughs> who, mm. who wouldn't be tempted into quaffing some of that? Well, that's your Christmas present sorted. Well, instead, could I maybe suggest, if none of those take your fancy, and hopefully they didn't, um, you could instead just get Snoop Dogg's Cali Red wine, bottle of red wine, which is £11 in Tesco, and it's apparently very good. <laughs> so how is Snoop Dogg connected to it, other than going, yeah, you could put a picture on it? He squeezed every grape himself. Ah, oh, okay, yeah, I'm in. Every single one. <laughs> Do you know what? Actually, there's... um. There's a QR code on the bottle label that you can scan and it gives like an interactive, you can ask Snoop Dogg questions and he, <laughs> he will answer. It's like an FAQ with, with Snoop Dogg, which I can only imagine after having a bottle of that would be fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should just do that for an episode. <laughs> just see, we'll do see a... what Snoop Dogg says. Yeah, should we just yeah, do right. a Snoop Dogg FAQ episode? It can yeah, only be like 20 good. minutes, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Get on that. Okay. I just, I had to, I know I was clutching at straws with Snoop Dogg's red wine, but I had to end on something nicer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got quite a funny story, actually. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I know you mentioned that birds tend to not get pissed, and this isn't sto- a story about... A bird that got pissed, but uh-huh. it's a kind of pissed off bird. So, um, but it's relevant, um, as you'll find out when I tell you. Okay. So, um, a rogue peacock wandered into um, a liquor store in LA, uh, and he just wandered in. I, I don't know if you've ever really kind of come quite close up or face to face with a peacock, but they are yep. really, in- really intimidating. Yes, they are. Yeah. They. I don't know what it is about them. <laughs> they are scary um so this peacock had wandered into the wine and spirits store and understandably the staff member was a little bit freaked out so got in touch um with the local animal control officer um (laughs) who made his way down to the store and they just had a proper face off with this peacock for 90 90 whole minutes so for an hour and a half they were chasing this peacock around the liquor store and it absolutely trashed the place because again they're, they're quite kind of flittish peacocks and they kind mm. of bounce around off things and he did just that and absolutely trashed the store and a lot of the stock which um included some very very expensive champagne so he kind of caused thousands of pounds uh, dollars worth of damage in his 90 minute rampage inside the store <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I like to think that the staff member there was like some, you know, 17-year-old Saturday job 
person that's yeah. going to have to at some point phone the boss and try and sell that story. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what happened, right? Um... <laughs> <laughs> there was this peacock. <laughs> nice. Um, can I tell you about tequila fish? Yeah. Great. So this guy, I wasn't sure then where you were going to give me the go ahead. I was like, oh, okay, what's next? Um, tequila fish came up in my research. It actually doesn't have anything to do with the booze. Um, it's just named after the region. But I'm going to tell you this bit anyway, because it's nice, um, especially after my last section. So tequila fish, um, they pretty much disappeared from the wild in 2003. Um, due to pollution, the introduction of invasive species. Um, but they have now been successfully reintroduced in a river in um, Jalisco in Mexico. And they are now thriving again in their natural habitat. And that is because a decades-long partnership between them and the conservationists at Chester Zoo. Um, which you know. And so... Um, in 1998, they began this project where the scientists at the Michoacana University of Mexico's Aquatic Biology Unit received five pairs of the fish from Chester Zoo. So they got them from Chester Zoo back in 1998. Those 10 fish established a new colony within the university's laboratory, and then the scientists maintained and expanded that over the next 15 years. So as the conservationists prepared to reintroduce them into the natural freshwater habitat, they had 40 females, 40 males from the laboratory aquarium. They released them into artificial ponds at the university, which were like a semi-natural environment for them. Um, so they could, you know, encounter parasites and, and prey and predators and all the rest of it. And then after four years in the artificial ponds, um, scientists estimate that the tequila fish population increased to some 10,000 individuals. And it was from those ponds that the scientists took 1,500 fish and released them into the wild. So there we go. Not boozy, but I thought it was a good animal <laughs> tequila zoo story of how <laughs> zoos aren't always awful. A lot of them, particularly in this country, actually, I will say, do so much towards um, uh, conservation. Hmm. I've got an equally uh, heartwarming story. Heartwarming uh, and bloody brilliant. Okay. Uh, it's a story about how um, vodka saved a cat's life. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. mm. uh, so in 2017, uh, a woman rushed a cat into uh, an animal hospital. She'd found the cat on the street, very unwell. Um, wasn't her cat, didn't know what was wrong with it, but could see it was very ill. And had rushed it into this animal hospital. Uh, they quickly realised that the um, cat had renal failure. Uh, so they were like, yeah, we think he's been poisoned or he's eaten something he shouldn't have. Um, turns out he had consumed some antifreeze. Uh, his kidneys were failing and had less than an hour to live. <laughs> this is my favourite part of the story. Uh, luckily, a nurse happened to have a bottle of vodka in her bag. Just <laughs> 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 as you do. No questions asked. Yeah, I've got a bottle of vodka. Mm, sure. Um, so they quickly administered it in a diluted form through an IV drip to the cat. And it's because the enzyme in the cat's body that would break down the antifreeze also metabolises alcohol. Um, so by hooking this cat up to an IV drip of vodka, diluted, mm-hmm. um, it saved its life. <laughs> wow. Mm. Um, that's how what I'm going to do to you if I ever find you in any particular state. 
of, yeah, um, just... of, of disarray or unconsciousness. I'll just make sure some booze is hooked up straight to your vein. You'll be fine. Make sure you dilute it, though. Make sure you dilute it. Well... Maybe give give me a bit of antifreeze first, just so you've got a backstory. <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna make it a buck fast as well. <laughs> um, I'm gonna tell you about cat windows, seeing as you just brought up cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do that, I have to introduce you to Dudley Bradstreet, um, who was an Irish adventurer and secret government agent in the 18th century. So during the Jacobite Rising of 1745, Bradstreet was employed by government officials to act as a spy among the rebels. Um, he also worked as a tailor at one time. Later, he became a brewer. And to and then he got into all sorts of trouble when he was trying to work as a brewer with the excise agents. And to try and raise funds for that, he wrote his biography, his autobiography, called The Life and Uncommon Adventures of Captain Dudley Bradstreet in 1755, which is freely available on the internet, actually. You can, uh, you can go and read that. So in that, he explains how when he was at a particularly low point, he spent his last um, bit of money, £13 it was, £13, at Langdale's Distillery in Hoban, who apparently, apparently at the time produced the finest gin in London. And so this is then what he did with it. Um, he says, I've got the extract, I purchased in Moorfields the sign of a cat and had it nailed to a street window. I then caused a leaden pipe, the small end out about an inch, to be placed under the paw of the cat. The end that was within had a funnel to it. When the liquor was properly disposed, I got a person to inform a few of the mob that gin would be sold by the cat at my window next day, provided they put money in his mouth. At last I heard the (laughs) chink of money and a comfortable voice say, Puss, give me two penny worth of gin. I instantly (laughs) put my mouth to the tube and bid them receive it from the pipe under her paw. So... Bradstreet basically created one of the earliest vending machines uh, that we're aware of, and it was for the distribution of illegal gin, um, which is pretty great. And um, But it wasn't just him. People thought, oh, that's a really good idea. So it became copied all around the capital. People would stand outside houses and call puss. And when the... <laughs> just ideas for the marketing of your cocktail, by the way. Um and when the voice within um, heard it, they would say, Mew! <laughs> and they would know <laughs> that they could buy bootleg gin inside. And um, this this habit of buying bootleg dodgy gin through, through cats, through the cat's paw, is why it became known as Old Tom, that variety <laughs> of gin. And that's where we get Old Tom gin from. Um, and it came from that particular man. You know how when I stay at your house and I'm in the front room and you sometimes send me messages to Alexa? Yeah. I want the next one to just be puss. <laughs> <laughs> You'll you... just hear me going, meow. Is that your way of saying you want gin for breakfast? Yeah. <laughs> next time you're over. Okay. Um, just on a related note with that, it's not really animals, but, you know, this is related to that origin story. A lot of bars obviously rediscovered the joys of serving from hatches during the pandemic um and the favorite images i saw came out of florence in italy where they have 
they have um, wine windows, which are called Buchetta del Vino. And they are hatches that were originally used to sell wine, to sell surplus wine direct to Florence's working class. And similarly, people would knock on the little wooden shutters. So they're very cute. They're like stone framed little windows with wooden shutters. Um, and they would have their bottles of wine filled there. And they started actually way before the cat windows. They started in 1532 and they were used right up until the 19th century where they stopped being used until the pandemic hit. And everyone went, that's a good idea. Why don't we start using those again uh, to reduce contact? So they started selling from um, these historic wine windows again. But it's not the first time they used it for that purpose. So the um, there was an Italian plague in the 1630s and the wine sellers even then understood that importance of, you know, self-isolation. They used mm. the hatches for that very reason. Uh, instead of taking payment by hand, the wine sellers would pass a metal pallet through the window and they would disinfect it with vinegar. Um, and loads of these still exist. So unlike the cat windows, which you cannot find in London, there are over 150 of those wine windows still in Florence. Um, if you look carefully for them, I've, I've been to Florence a couple of times and I can't remember having seen one. And I think that's partly just because the architecture, you know, the Grand Duomo and the Uffizi are so impressive that you don't necessarily, they're sort of, they're below the window. They're like sort of, I suppose, hip level. Uh, um, so you do have to look for them but there are lots of them and now they've been revived and they're serving things through them again not only wine but also Aperol spritz coffee gelato um in in addition to the traditional wine so it's become like a real feature of the city again (laughs) yeah oh, oh, oh i love florence yeah absolutely um that was it i just wanted to throw that little extra one in because i've spoken about cat windows Anything else from you? Have you have you decided what's going in your stinky pussy yet? <laughs> I'm putting nothing in there. <laughs> is, it, is it? It's just a concept. <laughs> it's a metaphor. <laughs> right. And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to pay our bar bill. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Cheers, everybody. <laughs> I can't do the laugh. <laughs> <laughs> You can always hear me sing in the song Show me the way to go 